This is Sad Girl Jams, a podcast about music, feminism, and mental health. And I'm actually hyped as fuck right now because I'm recording this just a couple of days after Harvey Weinstein turned himself into the cops and has been arrested on rape charges. I just have to say, thank fucking God, because I honestly and truly in my heart didn't think a goddamn thing was going to change, and I've never been happier to have been proven wrong about something. I'm so glad, so just had to put that out there real quick. Also, apologies right off the top, I'm getting over this weird, maybe cold, maybe allergies thing, so I'm really sorry if my voice sounds a little weird this time. Anyway, so, I read Carrie Brownstein's autobiography a couple of months ago, and it's been bubbling around in my head since. I'm a big Portlandia fan and watched the first couple seasons of Transparent pretty religiously, but reading her book kind of jolted me into the realization that Carrie Brownstein lived this whole other life, which I was only distantly aware of before she became who I'm familiar with now. Which, like, no shit, of course she did more than the body of work I've been aware of for the last 10 years, and to say that I wasn't more vividly aware of her during her days as one-third of Slater Kinney is absolutely to date myself a little bit, but whatever. We're here now, and I've always thought it was an asshole move to make someone feel bad about not loving something deeper sooner. Anyway, if you haven't read Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, I'll offer it up to you as recommended reading. Carrie started out as, for all intents and purposes, a seemingly pretty ordinary woman who grew up in suburban Washington, but she just happened to pick up a guitar one day when she was 15 and started taking lessons from a neighbor. From there, more or less, the music took over, and she became a prolific guitarist and member of one of the most influential Riot Girl bands that provided the backing vocals to the third wave feminism movement of the mid-1990s to mid-2010s. So reading Carrie Brownstein describe finding music created by women who inspire her is like hearing the voice of someone telling you about how they're falling in love for the first time. In Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, she talks about how a friend encouraged her to check out the music scene in Olympia, among the likes of Bikini Kill, Bratmobile, and Heavens to Betsy. In the book, when she goes to learn more, she recollects the first time she heard Bikini Kill's song, Feels Blind. She writes, I remember being deeply struck by the lyrics, look what you have taught me, your world has taught me nothing, and as a woman, I was taught to always be hungry, We could eat just about anything. We might even eat up your hate like love. 
To me, that perfectly summed up being a young girl. It was the first time someone put into words my sense of alienation, the feeling that all these institutions and stories we've been taught to hold as sacred often had very little to do with my own lived experiences. I had already been listening to punk, but hearing Bikini Kill was like having someone illuminate my world for the first time. Here was a narrative that I could place myself inside, that I could share with other people to help explain how I felt. I could turn the volume up on their songs, and that loudness matched all my panic and fear, anger and emotions that seemed up until that point to be uncontrollable, even amorphous. You get the idea, and you hear the reverence in her words, right? But just as equally as she spends time speaking with reverence about the music that shaped her, Carrie also spends some time in her autobiography very justifiably talking about some of the shortcomings of the punk scene when Slater Kinney was growing including, but not limited to, bands picking each other apart for not being perfect in their representation. Venues and crowds and bands that were sometimes too ableist, too racist, too homophobic. While I agree with her that there's a lot to be said for assuming positive intent, I'm glad that dialogue was happening then, because when you do look at a lot of the best-known Riot Girl bands, most of them are made up of white, able-bodied women, so I think it teed up a more inclusive space for the future. From the eye of a hindsight observer who was a child in the 90s, the riot girl movement and third wave feminism still had a lot of rough edges. They didn't always get it right, and sometimes they were heavy-handed, but there was virtue in its heavy-handedness. It marked a time when women claimed space by force and held onto it with all their might, regardless of how much blood and pain and bullshit came out in the process of forcing the world to take them a little more seriously. It was the first real time that a whole genre of music existed to bloodlet out some of the rage these women felt about, at best, being marginalized and not taken seriously, and at worst, facing sexual assault, domestic violence, and isolating self-critique and doubt perpetuated by society's ideals for women. It was holding up a mirror to a lot of the ugliest parts of society that had shown their teeth during the previous couple decades. This music isn't beautiful, but it doesn't have to be. It's angry, and that in and of itself is such a valuable thing. Women have earned the right to be angry, and they've earned the right to talk about it, when simply your gender, let alone if you're not white or not straight, automatically determines that you're considered less than, you're absolutely entitled to be angry. On average, women, especially women of color, still make so much less money than men when they're in equal jobs. And in the United States, the government very obviously gives more of a shit about its guns than it does about a woman's agency over her own body. Which, quick sidebar, huge shout out to Ireland for their landslide repeal of the abortion referendum. Great work over there. But, really, it's probably easy to put your head down and try not to get angry about what growing up in a culture thriving off toxic masculinity is like. Everyone's got their own shit in their life, and it can absolutely be overwhelming to try and do something on a personal level about the injustices this world faces. But it's getting less and less easy to do that, especially in today's dumpster fire of a political economy. But when technology and social media allow us to reach each other in ways that were previously impossible, and I for one am really glad that's the case. To circle it back to Harvey Weinstein's arrest, it's really the same idea. This marks one time that we stopped being apologists by ignoring or minimizing what these women went through. It created a massive tidal wave of so many other women finally being able to share their own experiences in a way where it was impossible to be silenced. I myself was in an abusive relationship during my first year of college. 
My then boyfriend and I worked at the same place. The Sparknotes version of it is that he was a sick piece of shit with really violent anger problems who couldn't tolerate women being better at something than he was because he grew up really privileged and thinking he deserved to have the world handed to him on a silver platter. Getting out of that relationship changed every single thing about how my future was supposed to be and was next to impossible. And it's taken me many years to not just even learn how to acknowledge and process what happened to me, but for me to give myself permission to be really angry that this person came so close to destroying my life altogether. Because that's the thing. When you're a woman, you're not taught to be angry. You're not taught to fight back. You're taught to be polite. And pretty much every single thing in this bullshit ideal of what it is to be a woman insists that whatever's happening to you is probably your fault because you were dressed wrong or you drank too much or you weren't pretty enough or you were too pretty or you shouldn't have been out that late or you shouldn't have trusted that person or you were too stupid or you were in the wrong place at the wrong time or no one was going to love you anyway. That's wrong. That's not real. That's the death rattle of someone or something, lots of someone's actually, trying to dig into the most painful parts of you that you try to shield and keep safe because they're scared of the potential that's in you and want to keep power over you. So get angry. Get really, really angry. You can be polite and articulate and clever and kind and a good person and still be really angry. Don't let it consume you, because that's certainly not healthy either, but give yourself permission to light shit on fire when it's the right thing to do. Give yourself permission to be angry when it means not giving up. First Bikini Kill song I ever heard was Rebel Girl, and what struck me the most about it, what still strikes me the most about it, is how the song shakes up this toxic, divisive, counterproductive narrative of women needing to be in competition with each other, especially for male attention. Anyway, the song starts off describing a girl who evidently walks around like she's pretty cool, and just when you're expecting Kathleen Hanna to lay into what an idiot this girl is, she flips that narrative on its head and sings, I think I want to be her best friend. And it's such a precursor to what Sophie Allison of Soccer Mommy does in her song Cool, which was actually one of the first songs on the Sad Girl Jam soundtrack Spotify playlist. In it, the subject has a heart of coal, has the attention of any given guy, the whole shebang. But then in the chorus, Soccer Mummy shifts from what you think might start off as a drag on this girl to wistfully expressing that she wants to get to know her better and be that same type of cool. If Kathleen Hanna hadn't jotted her chin out into the world in defiance and become a punk hero for doing so, would Sophie Allison have grown up in a world that was a little less okay with women supporting other women instead of tearing them down? If Celine Vigil of Seven Year Bitch hadn't stood her ground when she sang Dead Men Don't Rape, would Mia Follick have learned how to confront threats in Dead Body with all the force and power in her voice of a young Susie Sue? If Slater Kinney hadn't called out the industry's lack of inclusiveness, would Camp Cope have known how to hold up the mirror to a gender-based hypocrisy in the music industry? Maybe. But maybe not. We all learn from each other. Our successes, our failures, our honest mistakes. Every one of us is, in some ways, a sum of each other's progress. If we don't have each other in our corner, we don't have anything. Somewhere along the line, these riot girl bands screamed and fought back until their instruments were broken and their voices were hoarse. And without them putting in that work, we might not be as readily able to rail against the things that still try to destroy us. Even though it took me till college to really listen to Bikini Kill, I heard my first Slater Kinney song when I was 15. 
My friend Courtney and I used to pass each other mixed CDs during a high school creative writing class, and I've still got every single CD she ever made me, including the handwritten track lists we used to give each other describing why each song mattered to us. It was on one of these that I first heard Slater Kinney's Burn, Don't Freeze. It was discordant, and although I didn't quite know how to love it then, I do now. The way all our voices sound when raised together, though sometimes they may be just as dissonant as that particular Slater Kinney song, is a chorus that is ever-growing in strength. The tone may have shifted, but the influences that shaped it are still there, rumbling just under the surface. As women, we were indeed taught to be hungry, but now we have a better idea of what to do with that hunger. Thank you so much for listening. You can stay in touch on Instagram at sadgirljams. And if you like what you've been hearing so far, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Thank you so, so much to everyone who's taken the time to give a five-star rating and a review so far. It's kind of insane to see. And it makes me really happy if people are out there getting something out of this. Um, thank you. So if you're going to take the time also to listen to any edition of my companion Spotify playlist, Sad Girl Jam soundtrack, I'd really advise doing it for this episode. You can hear music from what we talked about today and so much of my favorite music that's really reflective of what's going on right now that's by so many super talented women. Um, Sad Girl Jams is written, edited, and produced by me, Lauren Gardner, and the music is performed by Moxie, who you can stay in touch with on Instagram at Moxie Loves You. That's M-O-X-I Loves You. And listen to them wherever you stream music. Thank you so much again for listening and sharing the show with your friends. And remember, stay kind and own your weird shit.